Welcome to Periods, Poos and Pimples. My name is Jacinta and I'm the founder and nutritionist of Arenda Women's Health, an online clinic specializing in all things skin, gut and reproductive health. This podcast is for all women who have ever had some level of confusion in regards to their health. Whether you're battling with a skin condition, menstrual cycle disorder, fertility issues or gut issues and you just want to understand what is going on and what you need to do from people who know what they're talking about. In each episode, I'll be speaking with experts in the realm of women's health to give you the highest level of education that you'll need to develop a deeper connection with yourself and your body. Although this information will be super insightful, this information is not for diagnostic or treatment purposes. And please ensure you speak with your medical professional before implementing any treatment protocols. Please do keep in mind, as we may refer to research or specific pathophysiology of conditions, when we're referencing male or female, it is specific to the gender that's assigned at birth and pronouns used are specific to the individual discussed. Thank you so much for tuning in and I look forward to you joining us on this journey. In today's episode, we're joined by chronic pain naturopath and pain reprocessing therapist, Danny Bickler. In Danny's clinical practice, she works with a wide variety of clients that struggle with conditions in relation to reproductive pain, whether it's thrush, BV, endometriosis, vulvodynia, or painful periods. Danny takes both a brain and body approach through the use of naturopathy and psychological techniques to support her patients on their healing journey. So thank you so much for joining us today, Danny. I'm so excited to jump into this topic with you. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to chat with you too. My pleasure. So I know that you've had your own personal experience with chronic pelvic pain, and I think that's a really good place for us to start to to listen to and would love for you to share about your own journey with this and then what led you into this work. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, like you said, I've experienced chronic pelvic pain. It all kind of led me to where I am today and how I practice Um, And coming from that place of really being able to understand, um, especially because it is quite a unique experience going through chronic pelvic pain or any sort of chronic symptoms, it becomes kind of a part of you. So you do learn a lot through it. It all kind of started for me in a really stressful period of my life. I was only 19 years old. I'd moved out of home for the first time in a totally new area. I was studying my degree, which, as you probably know, quite an intense Mm -hmm. degree. Um, just like very time poor, working, like all all sorts was kind of going on in my life. Almost in every area there was something stressful. And at the time I really didn't have very good strategies for dealing with that stress or even the ability to acknowledge that I was highly stressed. Mm-hmm. I basically, to put it simply, like I was not feeling safe in my life, in my body. And I experienced a traumatic event and and that was something that my body and my brain took on as a traumatic event. But I, again, didn't address that, didn't have the tools and kind of pushed it away and went on with my life. Um, I actually, the the pain side of things, physical pain started when I got a UTI, went to the doctor as you do. I'd left it too long to kind of get on top of it early or do any natural alternatives. So I went and got some antibiotics, took those with t- for two weeks and had absolutely no relief. This kind of went on. I went and got a million tests. I got tested for a whole range of STIs many, many times. Um, Saw all different, uh, like I saw specialists in the area and all that sort of thing. There was nothing, no physical findings were found. Everything was completely normal. Um, So I got diagnosed with something called vulvodynia. So Mm. the word vulvodynia basically just means pain of the vulva. So obviously I 
even though I'd done a health degree, I'd actually never heard of vulva dinner in my life until I had experienced it myself. And the way I describe it, it definitely does vary for different people. There's provoked and unprovoked. Kind of as the name suggests, provoked means you have pain um, when something is like touching the area. So that could be during like penetration or it may be just even like wearing clothes or underwear. Or you can also have unprovoked, which means you have pain kind of all the time there, regardless of what's happening. And that is a sort of vulvodynia that I had unprovoked. Um, so it kind of felt like it's hard to remember now because I actually don't have it. Um, but it was like a burning sensation and it was constant. So it was extremely uncomfortable, extremely alarming, really, yeah, it was a really unsettling sort of thing and I had no idea what was wrong with me or like I thought something was wrong with me so obviously yeah that was it was a really really tough time and I tried everything because I'd done a health degree as well I was I was so convinced that I was eating something wrong I was so convinced that I was uh, yeah I went to acupuncture I even did like energetic medicine like Reiki and I was just going down every single rabbit hole of healing myself trying to find a solution that you hadn't had yet yeah yeah and I was like it's got to be something physical because this is the way I'm trained is there's something going on in the body and I need to find the root cause and blah 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 I saw a vulvodynia specialist who uh, prescribed me a medication called amitriptyline I got the medication and at the time I was so anxious about taking a medication that the thought of taking it made me more anxious. So I didn't take it. I never took any medication for it. Now looking back, would that have helped me like to kind of break the pain cycle? I'm not sure, but I can talk a bit more about that um, later. But yes, I saw all these different doctors. No one, either people had never heard of it or they just were telling me, yep, this is something that happens to women sometimes. And this is, and like, we don't really know what causes it and we don't really know what to do. Mm -hmm. And the main kind of approach was amitriptyline. I did see a pelvic floor physio as well and I really um, she was the first one that kind of started introducing me to the fact to the concept of you may have something going on with your nervous system what's your stress levels like how, you know how are you how do you feel about the pain like that those sorts of questions and she did examination and that was an internal examination which I'd had before because of vulvodynia many doctors had kind of done that but she was really calm in the way she talked about it with me and she kind of said, yeah, you do have some tension in your pelvic floor but nothing really that should be causing this pain. So I was kind of at like this end of the road again, there's nothing wrong with me, What? but I can feel something so wrong. Mm. Like it's just, it's yeah, it's that kind of age-old story of I know something's wrong but no one can find anything. So you just like feel a bit crazy. And I guess at that point you're just kind of like, I guess you're just kind of chewing for, for anything possible to kind of like yeah. hold on to that you're like, okay, this is the thing that's going to fix me or like this is the cause and maybe once I have, once I can define what this is, then I'll have the solution and then I'll be able to kind of be relieved from this pain. 100%. I was disappointed sometimes when tests would come back negative. Mm. I was like, oh, what? this would be so easy if it yeah, wasn't. Like, if it was just positive, I would know what to do. And then like all this would be validated. It's just that validation of being like, well, this is why I've got pain. Yeah. And I had people be like, you just need to learn to self-soothe. You just need to mm. uh, do this. You just need to do that. It's um, like even kind of along the lines of it's in your head sort of territory. Yeah. Which I'll talk on too. But 
yeah, so so it was a mess. Um, but I and I was just had this like very alone feeling because I would tell people about it, but not a lot because mm-hmm. it was very personal. And even now talking about it, I'm super open. Like I want people to know that I've had it and I've recovered. I don't experience it anymore. But at the time, it was so like I didn't even want to tell my family. It was so embarrassing for mm-hmm. me, which it shouldn't have been. But it do- it just does feel like that. So. I kind of started, I was like, no, nah, I'm not having this for life. I'm not dealing with this. A lot of the forums that I was on, people were like, I've had this for 10 years, 15 years, my whole life. It's never going to go away. And I was like, no, that's not that's no, not, what, not happening. That's, I'm not living like this. So I remember just searching and searching and searching on Google, like just down all these rabbit holes. And I found a YouTube video of someone that I, th- I can't even remember now, but I think she was basically talking about um, something this concept of neuroplasticity so that basically it's a fancy word but it basically means the fact that neural pathways in your brain can be changed and that can be for good or for bad so you can have productive new neural pathways so breaking a bad habit or if you are stuck in a kind of habit loop or a way of thinking or a coping mechanism that's also a neuroplastic that's a neural pathway so mm-hmm. Kind of started talking about how how pain comes from the brain, and then I found um, an app that worked with called Curable that worked with chronic pain and brain retraining, and uh, then I found pain reprocessing therapy, and my life just kind of like changed from there. And I and it wasn't an overnight fix; it wasn't like I read the book and I was cured, but I I have like changed the way I think, the way I like the relationship I have with my body, all that sort of stuff. And over time I was able to overcome the pain. So mm-hmm. That's yeah. incredible. And I think with all of that, it really probably just comes down to that awareness of what that trigger was, like awareness of the fact that it's like, okay, this is a nervous system thing. This is a brain rewiring thing. My body thinks that I'm possibly unsafe. It's kind of keeping me in this loop of feeding this pain and mm. even bringing that to your awareness, it already probably starts to change and form new new pathways in the brain that, you know, your brain's starting to think differently, to think, well, this pain, actually, it's not physical. Yeah. And I remember first listening to the podcast and hearing people talk about it. And it's even become more popular in like the two, three years since I found out about it. But um, maybe a bit longer now. But yeah, it, it, it's a more popular concept now mm. than it even back then. So it was almost hard to find information but when I found I found it I was textbook it started during a stressful time the pain was consistent with stress like all of these symptoms lined up and it resonated and I was like that is me this is I this is what it is and it was like oh great I have to retrain my brain sort of thing yeah. like this is such what an did un- that look like what did that involve the, te- the the tools that you had to use and is this the tool that you use with your clients yeah, so pain reprocessing therapy is kind of like a big uh, overarching sort of term and yeah. it's basically a, a bunch of tools and education around chronic pain that teaches you to not fear your symptoms and teaches you that pain is actually a danger signal and that you are completely safe. And so that may look like somatic tracking, which I can talk a bit more about um, in detail not just meditation, like sit and listen to a calming kind of thing, but um, graded motor exercise meditations, even just like knowing when I was anxious. So I used herbal medicine quite a lot to calm down the nervous system, calm down the pain signals, 
with some kind of with um, herbal analgesics just so I had some relief mm-hmm. from the pain to be able to start processing and calming down my nervous system. But it, it really did start from education, like teaching myself about what pain is gave me relief, even just knowing that I wasn't going to die, like that this wasn't an incurable thing that no one could find. Like, I guess all of a sudden it probably takes that power away. Like you haven't given this power to like a d- diagnosis that hasn't been found yet. You've kind of yep. given that power back to yourself to say, hey, this is actually coming from our nervous system. And when you can kind of know where to put that energy, then you know that like you, you it takes a burden off your shoulders. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not all in my head. This is a physiological mm. process. This is science. This is yeah. clear as day. I don't have to go and heal all my emotions. I don't have to go delve into some spiritual reason why this is happening to me. Like mm. this is clear as day. This is my brain. This is my nervous system. This is our reptile primitive brain, if anything. Like oh, yeah. it's, yeah. So that was comforting in, in a sense. Do you feel like you're at your wit's end with trying to find a solution for your acne? We know it can be so frustrating when the only treatment you've been offered is Roaccutane, Doxycycline or the pill. But every time you get off, you're back at square one. We know the foolproof and flawless formula that works and we have it all in a six month program just for you. That's half a year of one-on-one support with the skin specializing naturopath. You'll have all the testing, fortnightly check-ins, meal plans, 12 plus hours of educational content. You name it, we cover it. Head to our website to book in a discovery call to get you signed up for our next intake of the Acne Solution. That's incredible. And I guess all these different tools that you've then used along the way is what you then use now with your clinical practice. And you were saying that an area that you specialize quite a lot, I guess, pain in general, but a lot of chronic pelvic pain. So can you actually define what chronic pelvic pain is and Mm. the conditions that it's often associated with? And what is, what is say like chronic pelvic pain compared to say just standard period pain? Is there much of a difference of how you would be able to differentiate? Yeah. So chronic pelvic pain, the word chronic pain means pain that's persisted for over three months. That's a simple, that's all you kind of get. They don't know the cause of that because it's so broad. So uh, when it comes to chronic pelvic pain, there's a lot of conditions that come under it. So uh, dysmenorrhea or painful periods is one. Mm -hmm. Also have uh, vulvodynia, vaginismus, which is like where penetration is either impossible or extremely painful. Interstitial cystitis, which is our sort of like chronic UTI symptoms, bladder pain, bladder heaviness, pressure, painful sex is comes under chronic pelvic pain, more bladder things like incomplete emptying or um, urinary incontinence is also considered that. And then we've also got endo pain. So when it comes under the term chronic pain doesn't necessarily mean what I'm talking about, that it has to be neuroplastic. There can be structural causes to chronic pain as well mm-hmm. um so things like period pain that would be behaving in a in a way that would be conducive to something structural or something biochemical happening in the body so it happens around your bleed it happens during ovulation um when we remove the obstacles like the physical obstacles so whether that be estrogen clearance whether that be anti-inflammatory increasing mm-hmm. your omega those symptoms will go away. Whereas neuroplastic pain 
And that that type of kind of category of chronic pain comes under a dysregulated nervous system and um, a hypervigilant brain and nervous system. So they, they can be distinguished and I can help people to kind of distinguish whether or not they have neuroplastic pain based on kind of the way the pain behaves. Yeah. So do you want me to kind of talk a bit more on that? Yeah, I think even like delving into the other things in terms of things that it might be linked to in terms of, you know, you mentioned earlier on about trauma Mm. and how it kind of pelvic pain or some forms of chronic pelvic pain can kind of follow a particular type of uniqueness or pattern about it. Yeah, so there is really, really high correlation and association between people that have experienced sexual trauma mm-hmm. and physical abuse and uh, chronic pelvic pain. This actually comes under chronic pain in general, so neck pain, back pain, all that sort of thing. But um, when it comes to pelvic pain, a study done I read recently said 46.8% of those that had chronic pelvic pain had experienced se- a sexual trauma of some kind or physical abuse. And that's that's really high. That's a very large, that's almost of, of women that have experienced that. I want to say, though, you really don't have to have experienced something that you can identify that that was the cause. Like you don't have to have a cause. Mm-hmm. It could be as you had thrush and the thrush didn't go away and then the thrush turned into um, chronic pain or you had, yeah, you had shame around your pelvic area or you, yeah. So it doesn't have to be something distinct, but there is definitely a, a sexual trauma link with pelvic pain. Also the, the fact that it's taboo, right? So you would tell someone, um, I oh, my back's so sore today. I'm going to go get an ice pack and like sitting in the office with an ice pack on your back. No shame about that. Everyone understands. Yeah. Oh, you've got, whereas if you have, for me, for example, like I had pain in such an intimate area, I wasn't going to be telling my male colleagues or my, even, even my mom or like someone that it was like, I didn't want people to know about that. I wasn't going to be saying, I, yeah, I, I get pain in my vulva. Like it's just Mm. not so taboo still. And even with people with endometriosis, like same thing, they tend to kind of struggle sometimes with having to explain that to people and explain themselves just because you don't really want to have to talk about like there's still period taboo like it's so true even if you were to think about it if you were working in a job that you had to call in sick because you had pain in your vulva and you know if you had you know a migraine or a bellyache you would easily feel comfortable to say over the phone to say hey sorry I can't come in I've got a headache or I've got a bellyache but you know if you were to say well I've got pain in my vulva it would be like oh is that something yeah. is that something just, we share oh yeah yeah I would never we're more likely to say oh I've just had a massive bout of gastro we're more likely to yeah. say that than which is literally talking about something graphic as well but we're way more likely to talk about that than something to do with our pelvic space so yeah it's um it's interesting and it definitely is a barrier to healing too because it puts this pressure on that you're alone, like you're dealing with this by yourself mm. or maybe if it's practitioners that you want to talk to, you know, so. Absolutely, I agree. I was going to say that that when you're just like purely the fact that you're not acknowledging it in your conversations with people kind of show, it kind of tells your body, hey, we don't actually recognise this. Like we're not, we're going to kind of shame this, you know. Yeah. This is something so taboo. This is something so not right that yeah we're not even going to talk about it sort of thing yeah 100 percent. and then also with that like the pelvic space 
and I am kind of referring to the female experience here because that's my experience. It's uh-huh. linked uh, for a lot of people's sexuality and even their femininity. So for me, I've had thoughts of, okay, well, like I'm quite scared of sex. Like I don't enjoy sex the same way that I used to. Um, how, what does that mean for my relationships? Like will uh-huh. I be able to be in a healthy relationship? Like I owe that to my partner or will I even be able to have kids? These thoughts that I was having, having at like 20 because I was like, oh, my God, this is – if I'm avoiding sex so much or how will I ever be able to hold a child if my pelvic pain is so bad? Like mm. it was, it kind of spreads out. The meaning of that pain just like ha- has so many implications. So that I would say is unique to pelvic pain over other types of chronic pain. And that's just my experience as well. So yeah, it's, there's, it's definitely a really unique kind of one, but the other thing that I learned through this is the when I saw a physio, physios usually pelvic floor physios are awesome with this sort of stuff. And even um, Pilates or yoga instructors, they talk a lot about the diaphragm and the pelvic bowl and how those are connected. We're, we're super in, interconnected in that space. So even like the way your diaphragm like contracts and relaxes when as you breathe, it's kind of like a rhythmic up and down. And mm-hmm. when we're when we're in a state of fight or flight, our vig- hypervigilance, like our nervous system is really, really high, we tend to kind of shallow breathe. So we're not breathing into our belly, and which means our diaphragm isn't having that nice kind of rhythmic motion. We're breathing mm-hmm. so shallow that our, our pelvic floor tends to become hypertonic, which which means overly tense, basically, overly toned, mm-hmm. um, pain, bladder issues, all sorts of issues. So even if you have something structural like endometriosis, it is good to see a pelvic floor physio because they may help you to relax some of that tension because we get so used to guarding. Something that's in pain, we guard that. It's mm-hmm. a We're protecting that space because we know something's wrong and it's not us even doing that. It's completely physiological. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does that kind of answer your question with how? Absolutely. And even like, that breathing, the the awareness of the breath is so important. Like we know that's the quickest way to kind of switch the nervous system from a fight or flight into like a rest and digest. But even you just saying that reminded me of one of my friends who had endometriosis and I think had a laparoscopy or something was happening and she was in quite a lot of pain. And literally the nurses was like, just focus on your breath. Like that was literally like this. And I was so surprised when she actually told me that. And for them to for them to suggest that it actually shows how much that plays a massive role because even just the breath is going to tell your body, well, I'm safe. And if one big thing that you've kind of spoken about constantly throughout this is that your body feels like it's almost not safe and you've got to remind it that it is safe. Yeah. It's the one thing you can't fake, right? Like you can be, Hey, I'm okay. I'm okay. Like you can be telling yourself all these things, (laughs) but if your breathing is short and sharp and in your chest and you're not, sending those signals through your breath like you're you it's not going to work like you're lying to yourself sort of that's thing. right yeah you can't you can't fake you can't fake that yeah, yeah. so it's like kind of goes both ways too the way you breathe impacts the way your brain and nervous system are functioning and your brain and nervous system impact the way you breathe so it's like this we break that cycle by learning to control the breath and doing other relaxation tools and somatic tools so then physiologically, emotionally, and I guess psychologically as well, what is actually happening in those that experience pain? Yeah. So I've kind of talked a lot around it. So it's good for me to kind of put it all together. So pain has two main categories. Mm-hmm. You've got pain or chronic pain. 
they behave really differently and they have very different effects in the body. So example of acute pain is like you've got a cut on your arm, you've broken your ankle, like something very mm-hmm. very physical, you can, you can see that. Um, whereas chronic pain doesn't necessarily have to have any tissue damage present. We can't see what's wrong. Um, sometimes you can, sometimes there, there is something that you can see, but quite often, um, chronic pain can be something that's kind of lingering there. So all pain comes from the brain and the way this kind of works that without our brain, we cannot contextualize sensations. So we can't have any pain. So pain's actually a danger signal as we've kind of touched on. It's really, really essential for our survival and it's also really effective as as a alarm system, as a kind of danger signal, right? When you're when you have thoughts, you can kind of push them away. Um, when you kind of have that gut feeling, maybe this isn't right, you can push that away. But when you've got something like pain, that gets your attention and you're gonna listen. Like, something's wrong with me. I need to sort this out. We don't like pain. It's something that we want to push away, both emotional and physical. So the best kind of example of acute pain, how it works, you put your hand on hot stove. We all know this example. Mm-hmm. Um, your brain warns you, danger, this is hot, quick. Like, you need uh-huh. to get remove your hand. So you pull your hand away really, really quickly. Quite often if you look at your hand and you've had that normal response, you have no burn on your hand. So that danger signal, that pain signal was really effective. It kept you safe. Its purpose was fulfilled. It kept you safe. Um, and how that's kind of working, so you've got sensory receptors in your skin. Those sensory receptors detect um, a temperature change. We have different types of receptors, but that's one of them. And that gets sent along the nerve fibres, up through the spinal cord, up into the brainstem and in your brain. Without your brain, that's just a sensation. That's just mm. a signal. Your brain is the part of you that organises that, contextualises that pain, and then sends a message out back to pull away oh that's hot take away your hand when we have chronic pain and especially neuroplastic pain that i'm referring to here the brain begins to detect safe normal signals from the body as something that is dangerous so it's like you've got a fire alarm and it's going off and it's going off but there's no fire there's nothing physically present but your brain has become hypervigilant and hypersensitive to those signals. Mm-hmm. So this does come under having something physical as well, but your brain overreacting to it. And so, for example, even with endometriosis, like we don't understand yet entirely how someone can have a lower grade of endometriosis and have a lot higher pain than someone that has a like. So there's a been higher grade of yeah. That's such an interesting topic. There's people bound to have the pain, um, endometrial growth, and they have not and not had pain. Like that is an, a really extreme example, but it does occur for some people. And we kind of need to think like, what what is happening there? Mm-hmm. And on this, I just before I kind of go further, when I first heard this concept, it definitely did trigger me a little bit because I was like, well, are you saying it's all in my head? Like, are you telling me that? Am I just making it up? Am I not resilient? Am I not strong? Do I not have it? And you almost kind of take pain threshold personally to be like, is this a me thing? Like, I'm not weak. Yeah, and it's such an ego thing too to be like, mm. I have such a high pain threshold. Like, you always kind of hear that. And it's not um, – there's so many factors that come under that, but it's very – pain is very, very real, whether it's neuroplastic or it's – 
or it's a broken arm. Like there's mm-hmm. even evidence to kind of suggest that pain that is comes from your brain um, or neural pathways is just as, if not more, painful than something physical because you also don't have a reason, right? You don't know why it's happening. You don't know when it's going to end. Whereas we all know if you injure your arm or something, we know how the body works. That's going to heal. An injury mm-hmm. heals. And I guess that's almost like the concept, I don't know if it's the correct term, like the phantom pain. You know how they say in in psychology how, you know, in people that have like had limbs cut off, they'll look at that area and they'll feel pain even though their limb isn't even attached to them anymore. But psychologically, they're kind of still recognizing that pain that's there because of, I guess, the experience they've had. That's that's the perfect example. Yeah. So how is it possible that this person that has, for example, been in a war, had their leg amputated, that limb does not exist. It's mm. not there. Yet that person experiences debilitating, excruciating pain in that limb. It's mm. not there. It's the neural pathways that are there. They never leave. Mm-hmm. So when it's creating new, you know, getting rid of pain basically, you actually aren't getting rid of your old neural pathways. You're building new new neural pathways that um to focus on so that's why it takes time because you're building new neural pathways the old one the maladaptive hypervigilant overprotective pathways are still there you just get used to using the better ones so Mm -hmm. the makes total sense right and we can we have a hard time sometimes accepting that pain can come from the brain but we fully accept that when you when you're sad you have physical tears like you have something you can see happening to your Mm -hmm. body or you get anxious and you feel really nervous in your belly and your heart rate increases. That's something so physical. Like we can feel that, we can measure that, that is there. And so I think something that's done a lot for the chronic pain kind of science in recent years is they're they're doing a lot of brain imaging. So now they can see that emotional stress activates the same threat territory, like threat regions in the brain as physical pain does. So we can't kind of distinguish the mind from the body. Like they're totally mm. one and the same. They're connected. Mm. We all, mind and our body are connected, but they're the same thing. Like it's all one. So, yeah, it's, it's I know that it can be difficult at first to accept like you or it's it's normal basically yeah it's normal to it's a physiological safety mechanism to when you have pain to think there's something wrong that's why humans exist for as long as we have is one of the reasons is because we have pain imagine if you didn't have pain and you mm-hmm. that nail you don't have eyes on the bottom of your foot you can't see that that's there you wouldn't even know you would have no pain and then that nail could become infected and then it could turn into whatever and you could lose the limb. Like that, it's so much more dangerous for us to not have any pain than it is to have pain. So we we do really need it and it's normal to respond to pain with a sense of anxiety or worry or what's going on there, curiosity even. it's That's totally normal. That's what we're wired to do. So yeah, I think there's kind of like the whole picture of how brain science works and you can learn a lot about this now. There's like really good resources on it. Um, but also it kind of comes back to what I found really helpful and simple to learn. Like, okay, that's how pain works. And the main kind of system that keeps pain going is the fear pain cycle. Mm-hmm. You can replace the word fear with focus, frustration, 
So like focus fixating on it or frustration, like I'm really annoyed at this pain. Like I remember also feeling like I'm so annoyed at my body. Like, well, haven't I been through mm. enough? It's like, I, what are you doing? I move my body and I eat well. Why yeah. uh, take my herbs? <laughs> yeah, like, we, why aren't you I, listening to me? Yeah, I look after myself so well. Why is this happening to me sort of thing? Like, and mm-hmm. down by your body, fighting it. So like, oh, I'm going to fix this and I'm in fix it mode. Like that's not productive either. All of those things can come under the word fear which uh, basically is another, because pain's a danger signal, it's when we fear the pain or have any of those other emotions linked to the pain and we're fixating on it and it's our entire life's purpose to heal this pain, that actually is reinforcing to your brain, oh, so this is important, this danger signal, we, we need to send out more, it's really important. Your brain just doesn't, it does, it's trying to protect you in that way. It thinks that because you are fearing the pain, that means there is danger. So it sends more danger signals, which creates more fear, more pain, which goes round and round. So, yeah, it's really about breaking out of that fear-pain cycle to be able to move forward. So then what types of treatments and other types of therapeutic intervention are available for those that have chronic pelvic pain from a medicinal perspective? So, where would you also reach for one method compared to reaching for another? Because I'm sure there's so many different, you know, tools in the toolkit that you can reach for as soon as like, you know, a new client comes into a consultation with you. Like, okay, there's so many things to kind of decipher, but what types of interventions, I guess, are available? And yeah, where is one superior compared to the other or how do you decipher between? Yeah. So it's definitely about meeting the client where they're at. If someone has never heard of these concepts before, we're going to start with learning about the pain and maybe a few simple exercises. And then I always do brain and body approach. So I'm supporting the body while teaching the brain. So the brain side of things takes a lot of involvement from the client, whereas the body is quite passive. Like you're taking your supplements and you're making sure you get good sleep and you're eating well. The brain side definitely takes a lot more involvement. So in terms of body approach, the medical approach currently is either opioids or SSRIs. In Australia, Mm -hmm. SSRIs are a lot more common. So that's like your amitriptyline, for example. We do have an opioid crisis happening. It's really bad, especially in the US, but that's, I think, being cracked down on quite a lot. because an addiction? Yeah, yeah. And just like the health, like the amount of money that goes into chronic pain is huge. Um, The burden on the medical system. So we're learning we need to treat this differently because it's not effective. So you can do amitriptyline as a medical approach. You can do pelvic floor physiotherapy. There's also a lot of like topical creams for things like vulvodynia, really limited and varying clinical efficacy. So basically Mm -hmm. means some people notice an effect, other people don't. There's no consistency. And I think it does come to back to how much they're fearing their symptoms. Mm-hmm. And Evo, like if someone trusts, if someone feels safe with a pelvic floor physiotherapist, mm-hmm. this is the first time someone's listening to them, exploring their symptoms with them, listening to them, calming them down, mm-hmm. of course, they experience better pain outcomes. So those ones. But then in terms of if someone like if, when I would reach for a natural alternative, so um, a pain herbal analgesic, so like our Californian poppy, our Jamaican dogwood, our Corey Dallas, those sorts of things, over medication is if they've tried medication and it didn't work, if they don't want to try medication, if they tried it and experienced a lot of side effects from it, these are kind of things that I see. Mm-hmm. 
we would try those avenues. And um, when it comes to herbal medicine, I'm mainly looking at anxiolytics as a herbal action, so calming down nerve system, helping with anxiety, mm-hmm. mood in because depression and anxiety are very, very, very high with people that experience chronic pain, mm-hmm. understandably. Pain-relieving herbs, which I've spoken about, and then also herbs that help with sleep, so our sedatives and hypnotics, because poor sleep is really linked with chronic pain and chronic pain causes poor sleep. So we need to break that cycle too. The other option that we have is a supplement called PEA. That's its acronym because it's a very long and hard to pronounce. <laughs> it is very long. I'm not even going to attempt it. <laughs> it's too, it's, it's too long. So I just say PEA. Um, this one is at the moment in Australia practitioner only. So you can get that from a GP or a practitioner can prescribe to you. It works through the endocannabinoid system. So the word cannabinoid, we think of cannabis, and that is the same system that PEA works in. However, PEA is a naturally occurring lipid in our bodies and we can get it from food, but in very low amounts. So we can take PEA as a supplement Mm -hmm. and it has really great analgesic effects, so pain-relieving effects, but it also helps with different neurodegenerative things and even things like depression and anxiety. There's some studies coming out. The reason why I reach for PEA is because it is non-addictive it doesn't have doesn't require you to take more and more and more and and it and it also doesn't you can it's safe so you can take it alongside um pain medication it's really really safe and pretty much I love it. i've used it a handful of times in clinics even it has like that impact on the mast cell and like histamine as well so i've used it in some cases where i've seen like um endometriosis or chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia and yeah. they have this mitochondrial issue and this pain, and then at the same time they've got histamine symptoms. Mm. And I find it can work so incredibly well. And for some people it's either, I'm not sure if, um, if you see the same. Sometimes you can see a result within even like, you know, a matter of a handful of days if it's the right thing for them. And then for others they need to wait for that accumulative effect by like that four to six-week mark. Mm. But I remember when I learned, when I delved into kind of the research with it and did some training with it, I remember being taught that it was like, well, everyone will kind of respond to it at a particular dose when you find that dose, Mm. which, you know, I think generally speaking, like when I've used it in clinical practice, there's some people that you can see tremendous results with a small dose and then others that you can get that high dose and you're like, cool, there's other things that haven't been addressed, like probably everything you're talking about, like the the psychological aspect of everything. Yeah. And I, so that's interesting because I find um higher doses i start high and then i taper down so i'll do yeah. people like 600 milligrams morning and night and then yeah. taper down. yeah that's right yeah if they, and i do notice the cumulative effect quite often as well mm. so four to six weeks even like up to there to be noticing an effect i've taken it myself for chronic pain and i notice effects really quickly like i love amazing it. yeah change yeah. like it really helped me get on the right track and the, and it's it's like it might sound contradictory. So I'm talking about physical treatments for something that's happening in your brain, but it's about kind of giving you that helping hand because if you don't get any respite from the pain, you can't think clearly, you can't calm down, can't you know spend that time learning about pain and all that sort of thing. So we definitely do like a multi modality approach. And with the other thing that I would say 
if you have vulvodynia or you have like chronic pelvic pain is um, especially if you have vaginal symptoms as well. So things like abnormal discharge, itching, dryness, all that sort of thing. I would say as well, getting a vaginal microbiome test would be a great idea because there may be pathogenic bacteria present that are worsening your symptoms. There may be like a lack of beneficial bacteria that's causing your symptoms. So it's worth having a look into and then you can kind of tailor treatment to that as well. So you may be needing more uh, fatty acids to help Mm with dryness or you might need um, to lower your refined sugar intake if you have more thrush-like symptoms or Mm -hmm. garlic adding in probiotics. Like there's so many different things. So And everyone's so different too. So it's worth looking at someone's whole picture and that might include a vaginal microbiome test. But -hmm. some people can have totally normal, um, totally healthy vaginal microbiome and have pain symptoms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what are the lifestyle and maybe even the diet strategies that you often recommend to those that are suffering with such chronic pelvic pain? Mm. So lifestyle strategies, some you would already know and some Mm -hmm. might be newer concepts. So the main type of somatic tool that I use and somatic means like relating to the body is somatic tracking. Mm -hmm. So this basically is a technique where you'd notice you kind of, so you close your eyes and you do some like calming breaths, kind of go into a bit of a meditative state. And then you learn to notice physical sensations happening in your body through a lens of safety. So this teaches the brain that these sensations are safe and neutral and allows you to kind of gradually change the way your brain perceives them. Mm-hmm. I'd usually do this in clinic through um, either live somatic tracking sessions and they can start really short uh, for a really short amount of time when they're first starting because it can be really nerve-wracking for some people to tune into their pain mm-hmm. or and then we can kind of grow, build up from there or I send someone a recording if they feel more comfortable doing that in their own time and in their own space. I'd also do graded motor exercises with people and a lot of physios do this as well. So graded motor exercises is basically where you, and, and with chronic pain, just for context, your ten, your life tend to tend to kind of um, shrink. So you, so I would say, have told myself, I can't do that type of exercise because my pain's worse. I can't sit. And I was even like, I can't wear that type of underwear because I'm going to get pain. So like your life does shrink and you, your brain learns these associations with that equals pain. So mm-hmm. great exercises help you to kind of get back to your normal life's activities. So an example would be, it's basically imagining a stimulus or a trigger for your pain and not doing that, not doing that trigger, but imagining that in really vivid detail. Mm-hmm. And then imagining when you are doing that, you don't have any pain. So you're doing it in a state where you have no pain because you're not doing that activity. And then you you are vividly imagining that. The, and you do this in short bursts and you kind of work your way up to it. So the brain, what, what we're realizing, the brain doesn't know the difference between imagining doing something and it actually happening and we kind of hear this before as well in terms of a bad sort of way so like you're imagining you're in a really stressful meeting and your boss is yelling at you and that's going to go terribly right it's true it's almost like you know those shower conversations you have where you're fighting with someone that doesn't exist and you're just kind of getting so worked up and angry it's like this isn't even happening yeah that actually reminds me of i think there was something i listened to a while ago or it might have been something i read 
and it was about how in research what they've done is they had like a group of people separated them into two and I think for one group of people they got them to visually picture themselves like, you know, playing the piano, for example, and like learning a song and then the other people didn't. And then they kind of got them all to kind of all newbies, all kind of got them to, you know, play the piano. And the ones that visualized themselves doing it were much more successful at being able to do it because they'd already probably started building those new pathways in their brain to say, this is how we perform this behavior. And I guess in this case, it's kind of the same. It's like, this is how we perform this behavior, but without pain. This is the feeling and the emotion that's attached to this behavior when we're experiencing it. Exactly. That's a perfect example. That's and and you hear of athletes doing it as well. They'll mm. train and train and train, but they also do visualization. They visualize themselves carrying out and it's kind of practicing without having to physically do it. So yeah. Yeah. that's a really kind of effective way as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's provided. So you can do that through recording or live with a practitioner um, or like an exercise physiologist. They'll do that sort of thing as well. But then I'd also encourage getting back into gentle movement, um, kind of dispute the way the feel-good hormones that are released, the pain-relieving hormones that are released when you exercise. And um, when you, even if it's something small, like some people are so debilitated by their pain that they can barely walk. So you do like walking to your letterbox and back and then you build up, build up. But getting back to gentle exercise is really important um, mm-hmm. for For me, I did swimming because any time I was walking and out on land, my brain had the association that that meant I was going to be in more pain. So I would do swimming as my kind of way of exercise. Yeah. But also, like, I found I'm not the best swimmer. So I'd not be able to think of anything else but like trying to breathe when I would swim. And that was quite like a meditation through movement sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the other two, lifestyle things you can do which are very simple is meditation and journaling and both of them have scientific um, studies that have been published now proving that they lower people's pain scores and also anxiety and depression that go along with that have been lowered as well so it's all about basically distancing ourselves from our from our thoughts and notice our triggers being able to understand the emotional triggers so, yeah, and, and kind of like not letting those emotions become stuck and, and developing resilience and all that sort of thing. So there's those are kind of the lifestyle things that I would do. And then on top of that, pain reprocessing therapy would, would be a really good place to start as well. It's all about using neuroplasticity to reprogram your brain and reduce those overactive danger signals. That's what all of these kind of things come back to. That's incredible. Well, thank you so much for sharing all this information. It's been absolutely great. Like I've learned so much as well. And I can just think of all my clients that I'm like, oh my God, they need to learn this. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if you were to give three top tips for those that are suffering with chronic pain, where would they start and what would they be? So I would say um, number one, seek help from a pain-informed practitioner. So mm-hmm. really network of pain-informed practitioners. Don't listen to doctors or mm-hmm. any practitioner that tells you you're going to have pain forever. Mm-hmm. Um, this is your life. This is your life sentence. We don't know what to do about it. Um, that's not the message that you need to be hearing. That's only reinforcing to your brain that you can't recover. So yeah. I'm really seeking out pain-informed, the right team to help you mm-hmm. um, would be my first point. I'd also then focus on calming down the nervous system before you kind of go down all these different avenues and 
um, kind of pay all different practitioners. You can focus on what helps you calm down your nervous system. So that may be even as simple as spending time with a friend that makes you feel really safe and really heard. That may be cooking, that may be walking, that may be meditating, whatever that is for you. And a lot of those um, techniques I just mentioned in the lifestyle, like those I would be focusing on calming your nervous system. Mm-hmm. And um, the last one is learn. So learn and educate yourself on what chronic pain is, how it starts, what you can do. I can list a few resources that I got a lot out of when I was kind of deep in throes of chronic pain. Um, and one of the books that really helped me, it's called The Way Out by Alan Gordon, and he's mm-hmm. a pathologist. Um, really clear, really simple, this is what you need to do to find a way out of pain. Um, And there was a few other pain podcasts that I listened to and they actually had recovery stories on them. And that was really awesome to hear people that have exactly what you have and they're, they're completely fine. So that was the two podcasts I would recommend would be like mind, like body Mm -hmm. and another one called tell me about your pain. And they're all by people that have experienced pain and recovered. And also um, they're trained in the area of pain. So yeah, I just I, kind of my main sort of thing is to spread the message that you are going to be okay. There is hope and so many people have recovered from chronic pain and if they've done it, then you can do it too. Absolutely. I love that. Thank you so much for everything. And I will pop all those resources actually in the show notes as well for those yeah. that are listening. And you mentioned the curable app before too. So I'll write that yeah. information in um in the show notes and yeah. if there's somewhere where people can find you which i'll also pop in the show notes um where can they find you through a website or instagram so my instagram is alivio.health spelled a-l-i-v-i-o um and then my website's aliviohealth.com.au awesome well thank you so much again and i'm yeah we'll pop all those details in the show notes thank you